College graduates will be homeless slaves with massive debt. Now, you know, I like to be optimistic. I like to see the bright side of things. I'm one of those glass half full kind of guys. But sometimes there's just such an avalanche of feedback in a particular area that we really just have to address. Now, I'm going to address some avalanche of questions that I got, but also with a dose of optimism about what we can move toward. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to take care of business. We're going to talk about some options, but I got an avalanche again this week of input from frustrated college graduates. Now, the heading I used there, I actually wrote a piece two years ago. College graduates will be homeless slaves with massive debt. And I went through some of the statistics that we're seeing about how many actual college graduates are, in fact, homeless. Well, the input on that blog post continues to this day. It just took on a life of its own. It just continues with the massive amount of people who are adding content there. Now, um, that being said, a lot of people I'm sure aren't even aware of that, but I just get continued fresh input week after week after week. So here's some of the things that we're going to be looking at today. I've got a degree in teaching, but I don't want to be a teacher. I'm a 45-year-old attorney married with four children, working for a nonprofit, making 48000 a year. Now, I like the number 48, but not when it's attached to the income for an attorney. My gosh. Here's one. My son has two degrees, one in communication speech and one in theater. He considers himself an actor, does short films in our state as a side which doesn't pay. He has $83,000 in school debt, can't see himself coming out of the black hole anytime soon, if ever. Some of, the, some of the recent comments on that blog post I did two years ago, here's one from Scott. I have a master's degree and I live in a homeless shelter. I have a blog. I've written five screenplays, three stage plays, and a novel. None of this is making me any money, and I'm medically limited to a desk job. And I, I had done some of this before I even had a bachelor's. The problem is a 108 to 1 application to job ratio interview ratio, which is entirely the fault of others. Not sure really what Scott's referring to there, but anyway, has a master's degree, lives in a homeless shelter. Uh, somebody else is going to college is the dumbest thing one can do in this modern age. There's internet. All that money could have been invested to start your own business or something. It's truly sad. Another one says, I can't even get an entry-level harvesting job with a college degree in horticulture. Well, we're going to talk about some of the sad stories, but also some of the positive things that can be done. Yes, the workplace is changing. Yes, the options are different. Well, our quotation comes from Jim Rohn one of the old grand masters of achievement who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. So we want to talk about some of the ways of self-education. I'm revising 48 days to the work you love. 
Going to come out with a new version in February. Excited about that. One of the chapters in there that was new in the 2015 version was, Yes, I Do Have an Education. And it talks about the ways that we get education that are valuable. The things that we really can do to increase our marketable skills. And with that, find opportunities in today's environment. And not all of those are learned by sitting in a classroom, regurgitating what's in a textbook. I mean, there's no secret about that. Things are changing. Will Rogers said, and this was years and years ago, the more that you learn to read, the less you learn how to make a living. Wow, that's one thing about a little education. It spoils you for actual work. The more you know, the more you think somebody owes you a living. Ouch, boy, that's a pretty painful statement. The more you know, the more you think someone owes you a living. Well, I hope that's not true for you. But certainly we see that played out. Yeah, people who have a master's degree and they're too good to take a job at Home Depot paying $18 an hour. You know, they pass up opportunities to just get engaged and prove their worth and value. Well, I'm going to be addressing this. Now, here's, I'm going to be addressing this in a webinar. It's a free webinar, Monday night. Mon- well, actually, Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon, September 9th, 1 o'clock. PM Central. And I'm going to address the five things that people get stuck on that hold them back from launching a successful business, hold their businesses back, five things that entrepreneurs struggle with. Now, I believe you can push through those five things, obviously, and I believe there are great rewards on the other side. Now, we're going to follow that. After that one o'clock, one to two o'clock webinar on Monday, we're going to follow it by just opening up the call, a new call with members of the 48 Days Eagles community who are talking about the things that they're doing. My goodness, we got lots of people who are eager to share their stories about what they're doing, having moved away from a traditional job or added to that. Nothing wrong with having a traditional job, but if you feel trapped there, you're wrong. You can move past these things that other people see as obstacles. So again, that's going to be on Monday, September 9th, 1 o'clock Central. To register, hold a spot for that. Just go to 48dayseagles.com slash unstuck. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but it's 48dayseagles.com slash unstuck. Now, I want to give you just, just one little bit of good news here. And then we're going to go right into some of these poignant input pieces, questions, commiserations, whatever we call them, from people having to do with this issue of college degrees. Again, I didn't intend for this to be just topical, but there was so much this week that came in. I don't know what, what we here are, we are the beginning of September. I'm not sure why there's a timely thing. I mean, people would have graduated perhaps back in May or June. Maybe they're just figuring this out. I don't know, but I just got an avalanche of these kind. I thought, well, we'll just stick with that. With the balance then being the webinar that I'm going to do how to get unstuck and how to move into something entrepreneurial. If you got a side business that you have been thinking about or that you want to grow, there's no reason not to move into that. So again, I'm going to unpack five things that get people stuck in this free webinar. One of those is fear. How do you get past fear? The fear of the unknown, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of not having a guaranteed paycheck, the fear of not having benefits, 
holidays off? Well, we're going to walk through those and show you what's on the other side. Now, this comes from me. And I mean, I I have spent my years getting degrees, traditional degrees. Um, I have, you know, more than anybody needs. So I'm not dissing that, but I did it not with the idea that it would lead me to some kind of a career opportunity. I spent every day of my time in college, university environments, simply because I enjoyed the personal development that that allowed. I like the process of personal growth and development, discourse with other people who are on the same path. It's personal growth and development. I was, I've always been self-employed. I would never have I taken my resume or degrees and gone to look for a job. Now, that's not the approach that most people take. They do, they go look for a job, I mean, for a degree specifically, so it'll position them to get a job. And of course, we know that a lot of those people are disappointed. All right, well, here's, here's our, our little side note. I was listening to a podcast just over the weekend with the guest was an acoustic ecologist. And this is really interesting. And I've just been kind of rumbling through my head on this and sharing it with other people since then. An acoustic ecologist. It appears that in noisy environments, people are less likely to help each other. We're busy just kind of blocking out all the noise, blocking out the environment. I mean, think about being, you know, on the street in New York City, you know, thousands and thousands of people around, horns honking, trucks making noise elevators, all that. And we just have to kind of maintain our sanity in that kind of environment. Well, you know what? If you see somebody on the street who falls, people are less likely to help somebody when it's noisy. When we're in a quiet place, we take in all the information around us and we're more receptive and more helpful. When we're really listening, we're more vulnerable and more likely to respond to needs around us. So my question is, you know, what kind of environment are you in? Does your environment inspire you to be helpful or are you just trying to survive? Just a little side note there, just something I found interesting. Well, here's some of the questions that we got then. This comes from Arthur, who says, I'm currently on day 25 of your 48-day program. For day 21, I sent introductions via LinkedIn's in-mail feature that allows you to send introductions to people who are not in your network. However, now that I'm about to send my resume and cover letter to these contacts, I realize I can't send a follow-up email. I also realize the people I send introductions to don't make their email addresses available on LinkedIn. What would be your advice in this situation? Would you snail mail the resumes to the business addresses, then call to follow up? All right, well, Arthur, you know, legitimate question. And I talk in 48 Days to the Work You Love on day 25 of the 48-day process about how to send out your introduction letters, that being the first of three contacts. So you send out your introduction letters. Doesn't require anything of the recipients. Just lets them know who you are, what you're all about, what your area of expertise is, and to expect then a cover letter and resume from you a few days later. That's the process. That's the, that's the first two steps. Then you send the resume and cover letter. And then after that, four or five days later, a phone follow-up. So you have to have the contact information of people in order to be able to do that system. When you see limited information on LinkedIn, 
yeah, it's tough to go through those three stages. Now, let me just respond as somebody who is on LinkedIn. I don't use LinkedIn, but I am there, have lots of contacts, connections, and all that. When I see people reaching out through there, well, for one thing, I may not see it for two weeks because I don't go in and check frequently. Now, again, I'm probably unusual in that. I don't expect to use LinkedIn for real valuable connections. I don't feel like it has a big enough part in what I do, the people that I want to connect with. If you're you know, looking for an executive position, I think there are probably some legitimate reasons to use it. However, because it's complicated to really create relationships with people there and to do the follow-up in the way that I lay out, I would encourage you to make LinkedIn about 1% of your job search process. Please don't rely on that alone. Just use that as one little tiny part, but then be connecting with companies that you do know about, companies that you can research and find who the people in decision-making positions are, you know, much, much easier than what you can do there. So that would be my main advice is don't try to force the system in LinkedIn to work to be fully what you need. Just use that as a tiny piece and move on to the other more traditional ways to contact people. All right. Now, I want to play this clip from a young lady, and she explains her situation very clearly, so I don't need to give you advance notice, but it certainly relates to what we're talking about today. Hi, Dan. My name is Lauren, and I was just wanting to ask if you had any advice for a 27-year-old newly college graduate who got her degree in education and found out that maybe she doesn't want to be a teacher after all. I spent the last two years working in a classroom, and though it was rewarding, I just found that it wasn't the right fit for me and found myself missing some of the aspects of my previous work experience in business and banking. Um, I have applied for many jobs that I would say are my dream job of working in education still for a school district, but working in an internal department on the more business side of things. However, I just find myself being passed over for internal candidates or for candidates that, you know, I'm speculating here that maybe have uh, degrees in business or in less specialized um, areas. So any advice that you would have, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts that have been covering this. So I appreciate everything that you've said so far. Uh, I'd just like to also quickly shout out to my dad, Derek, who is a big fan of yours and a longtime listener. So I know he'll be excited to hear what you have for me in terms of advice. Uh, he's always been my, my biggest supporter and, um, you know, always just sending me your way. So we appreciate what you do. Keep doing it and we'll keep listening. Thank you. Well, thanks, Lauren. And a shout out to your dad, Derek. Hey, Derek. Well, golly, your question is so typical. So typical. Now, we know that 10 years after graduation, 85% of college graduates are working in something totally unrelated to their college degree. That's one of those I'm going to be unpacking even more in the new version of 48 Days to the Working Lab. So we have to realize that it's not a very direct route to a career. Again, I go back to there are two reasons to get higher degrees. One is so you get a piece of paper that positions you to get a job in a particular area. Number two is for the personal development that takes place. Now with number one only as your goal, you may be disappointed 
And you'll hear coming up a couple more stories like that where people chose a professional degree just because they thought it would be guaranteed income. And that's not always true. Now, like what you're experiencing, Lauren, you got a degree in teaching and have decided that you don't really think you want to be a teacher. Don't beat yourself up for that. You're in that 85% who have a degree. Certainly, the personal growth and development of that experience can't be taken away all the fun times you had in college. Now, hopefully, you don't have a lot of student loan debt to, to limit your options at this point. But that being said, certainly, it's a good background. There's really nothing to prevent you from pursuing pretty much anything that you want to do. And having a degree does still show employers you had the discipline to do that. You know, it's not a negative in any way. I would encourage you just to be really aggressive about pursuing those opportunities you want. Now you say that, well, you know, a lot of those seem to be taken by people who have more experience. I mean, that that's a classic kind of thing. And I hear from people who say I'm too young and people who say I'm too old. People say I'm too short. I'm too tall. I've got the wrong degree. You know, all those kind of things. We all perceive there's something about our situation that's unique. That's holding us back. Nah, it's just pretty typical all the way through. So hold your head high. Don't try to force yourself to be in the classroom if you don't enjoy that. If you want to be in the the more administrative side, boy, that's a legitimate area of focus for you. And I think that you'll find if you continue to look for those opportunities, put yourself out there, make personal contacts, go through the job search process, you know, identify 30 to 40 organizations where you know they could use what it is, the skills that you have that you really want to put to use and go through that job search process, you're going to get takers on that. You're going to bypass people who have more experience and more degrees than you do. Because ultimately, when somebody's interviewing, they're asking themselves, do I like this person? Do I like Lauren? Is she fun to be around? Is she going to fit in well as part of the team here? So those are the things that are going to be asked. And those are the qualities that can help you bypass others and find pretty much any kind of opportunity that you want. All right, this comes from an educator. Now, he asked that I not share his name, and rightfully so, because he kind of given us an inside look at higher education. He says, Dan, um, as you know, and I do know, I know him, I've worked in higher education for the past several years. I've come to agree with much of what you've been saying about the value of a conventional degree. Yes, for trades and specific callings that need comprehensive training, there is value in a quality education. But in my role, At the institution where I work, I see perfect examples of the wastefulness of attending college. Now, again, this is, you know, there are, there are documentaries out there where we kind of see the inside of an institution, whether it be the food industry or whatever. And this is certainly an example of seeing kind of the inside from somebody who is there, not somebody on the outside who's just pointing fingers, but somebody who's on the inside who sees it day after day. He continues, to be honest, the way that it's structured, a large portion, uh, just go to school to get the benefits. Not only do grants pay for the schooling, but for those who have learned the system, they actually can make money going to school. Yes, they will ruin any future chance to use those funds to really make a difference in their lives, but they go or are encouraged to go to get those funds now. Now, have you ever, yeah, just this is a break. This is not his continued letter, but my insert here, my goodness, I know how appealing it is to get those grants that are out there. Boy, you sign your name and get $2,500 in grant money to use as you wish. Now, assuming that it's going to be used for 
tuition or school expenses, but there is a lot of that, but that's usually combined with, and well, really to make sure that your tuition's covered, you also need to sign for, you know, $3,000 in school loans. Yeah, don't worry about it. You're going to get a good job. You can pay that back. And thus we have people who come out the other end with, you know, a lot of times with professional degrees who have $200,000. I mean, we hear from people all the time. There's a gal recently who was a pharmacist who had $220,000 in student loan debt, and she didn't want to be a pharmacist. Now that is a challenge. You know, what are you going to do to give you a big financial shovel to repay that? Now she's pretty, you know, she's a smart gal and she's starting to do sell online and starting to make significant income. Last time she provided us income, she was at about $8,000 a month. So she's doing okay. If she lives simply, she can start paying that back. But even at that, I mean, think how long it's going to take to pay back student loan debt. Well, anyway, and this, our, our academic inside insider here continues a 25% graduation rate is considered good. So there's a whole lot of people who have two or three years of school behind them, massive student loan debt, and don't even have a degree to show for it. The price of education, he continues, uh, is exorbitantly risen only because the federal government has subsidized the cost of attending. Textbook prices have risen over a thousand percent in the last 40 years. That's just one example. The publishers have decided that they can charge whatever they want because the government will pay for it anyway. Another example are the classes that students have to take. 40 years ago, orientation was probably a two-page document. Then it became a one-afternoon seminar, how to get an actual valuable degree, one that has to take, well, well yeah, now an, uh, an orientation class at an average per credit of $594 per credit hour, you tell me the financial sense of that. So you have to, you have to accumulate debt to take an orientation class that teaches you how to go to school. Well, Lyndon Johnson's call to give every American a right to education has turned into an unnecessary expectation. I've come to view getting a regular standard degree as only a paid hurdle to get over. As a result, we're spending ourselves into deeper and deeper debt as an individual, as individuals and as a country to get something that for many jobs, we don't need anyway. I mean, how many advertised jobs list a bachelor's degree in any field just as part of the qualification? Well, recently I gave a list of 10 notable companies, companies like, you know, Amazon and Google and Home Depot and others who no longer require a college degree for years. They did. They just had it as kind of a standard thing to help screen applicants. So instead of getting 800 applicants, they get 300, but now they've removed it. They're saying there's really no correlation between having a college degree and what they need to have done. So they've removed it. Well, our insider continues with some other tips here. Uh, parents need to be true, truly develop a cost benefit analysis for college education. Businesses should drop the degree requirement for jobs that don't really need them. Again, uh, he says, I want a very well-trained physician, but a computer programmer can get everything he needs with maybe 10 or so Udemy courses. I mean, obviously, yeah, and we talk about that, you know, Udemy courses, Linda, Creative Live, courses like that, or places like that where you can, you can go and uh, get the information, get the training you need to give you marketable skills at very, very little cost. Incidentally, there are links we've got to get college degrees. Wow, there's one I've got here. Let me scroll back up here to get it. Um, and it is, 
I'll give you the link where you can get the first year of college without any cost at all. And that is modernstates.org. Modernstates.org. You can get your freshman year for free. Now, I recently put a link in our show notes here about 20 schools where you can pretty much get your entire bachelor's degree at no cost at all. More and more, that's true. Now, also, we're seeing that high school students are taking college classes while they're in high school. A friend of ours recently uh, graduated, 17 years old. She graduated from high school, and on the same day, she got her associate's degree, meaning she has two years of college behind her. And she got that very, very minimal cost from a very reputable school. Now, she's elected to spend the last two years on campus just to get the college experience, even though she could have gotten the degree just continuing as she was. Well, there's, uh, boy, there's some information out there right now. Now, Our gentleman who's an insider is thinking there ought to be a documentary. He's willing to provide input on that you know, the 10 things you need to know about college, but maybe a documentary like you've seen them out there. I watched one last night, Minimalism, where it talked about two guys who had been on Wall Street making exorbitant amounts of money and decided their life was being sucked out of them. They were trapped rather than given opportunity. And they walked away from that and now promote minimalism. And there are documentaries like Forks Over Knives that talk about what happens in our food industry. Certainly there's time Time is due for a documentary, um, kind of talking about the challenges of our college, our academic system. That would be a great idea. I want to encourage you to do that. It's wondering if that could be crowdsourced, like raising the funds to do the, the documentary on, golly, on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, something like that. I think that's pretty reasonable to expect that that could be done. Now, just a couple other notes here before we move on with some of the input. There, there's a whole lot of information out there right now about some of the things that our insider mentioned in his lengthy note here. Yeah, there, there is collusion between colleges and textbook publishers where they're trying to scam students, where they say this is an updated version and it's really not. Or they say you're required to get this textbook here, and it has the school logo on the cover, but it's no different than one you could get on Amazon or find somewhere at half price. There's a lot of things going on there to create custom books, where if you go to the Ohio State University or Vanderbilt, you have to buy books that they recommend that they make available, even if those books are available other places. You know, the the cost of textbooks is exorbitant. A book that you would expect to pay $19.95 for may cost you $135 because it's a textbook. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, if you're writing a textbook, you, know, you can't expect it to be to sell $250,000 copies or become a New York Times bestseller. It's not going to do that. It's designed that. So the authors think they ought to be compensated because the sales numbers are going to be much less. Thus, they help try to fix the system so that the book does cost way more than what it would typically cost otherwise. Hey, there's a lot of one other thing on this. There's, there's a whole lot of things that are happening that are unhealthy in the student loan arena. Knowing that so many people are strapped with exorbitant debt in the student loan arena, there are companies out there, unscrupulous companies that are saying, we can take care of that. We'll consolidate it. We'll give you lower interest rates. They promise anything. 
have you send your payments to them instead of the people who you owe the student loan debt to. And then some of these people discover two years later that their payments were never submitted. And these people have simply raked off more money, you know, really, really sad. I mean, it, it makes you cringe to think there are people like that out there who would take advantage of people already in trouble and put them even deeper in, de- in debt. But again, when there's a pain point, you can be sure somebody's going to step up and say, hey, I can take that away from for you. I can, I can make that feel all better if you just do this. Well, here, this one comes. And again, he asked that I not use his real name and you'll, you'll see why his lead in is, should I go back to work for a toxic employer because I need the money? Hi, Dan. Uh, Thanks for all your resources for all you do to help those of us struggling to discover our passion and find the work we love. A question I have is, should I go back to work for an individual who created one of the most toxic and stressful work environments I've ever experienced just because I need the money? All right. Now, those of you who this is like those of you who listen to my buddy, Dave Ramsey, you can anticipate his his response. Sell the car, you know, or roll over your 401k. You know, you can anticipate the response. Well, what do you think my response is going to be to this listener? Should I go back to work for an individual who created one of the most toxic and stressful work environments I've ever experienced just because I need the money? No, no, no. My goodness, you have to have 9,999 better options than to do that. Well, he goes on. I'm a 45-year-old attorney married with four children, working for a nonprofit, making $48,000 a year because of income-based repayment plans and deferment. Now get this, this, oh my gosh, because of income-based Repayment plans and deferments, I owe more in student loans now than I did when I completed my formal schooling 11 years ago. Golly, that's the challenge of these stinking loans with deferment plans, repayment plans, and interest. 11 years later, he owes more than he did the day he graduated. It continues, the most I've ever made has been around $85,000 a year, which was about six or seven years ago. Ever since then, things have gotten progressively worse. I feel my career has been spiraling and out of control for several years, and now it's affecting almost all other areas of my life. I would think so. Over the years, there have been some glimmers of hope for a better career and brighter financial future. Times when we appeared to be digging out of the deep hole, I dug for myself and my family, but those glimmers of hope grow dimmer each day. It's almost as if someone is putting the dirt back into the hole faster than we can dig it out. In addition to my income, my wife works part-time, which helps. But at this point, we need much more than a bigger shovel to help us get out of the mess we're in. Wow. During my high school, now now listen to this setup. Again, sad, sad setup. During my high school and undergraduate years, I naively and regretfully fell for the mistaken belief that all I needed was a degree to be successful and earn a good income. I chose a relatively quick major that I found somewhat interesting, but gave me no practical skills. After graduating, working in low-wage jobs for three years and never seeing my wife because we had to work opposite schedules to avoid the cost of daycare, we decided I should go to graduate school to improve my career and income options. Again, get the motivation. Not to follow a passion, not for personal development, to get a degree to improve my career and income options. Somewhat naively, 
we decided an MBA or a JD, which is a law degree, which would be the best options to obtain a good job with, with a good income. After researching, discussing with others the pros and cons of each, we decided law school would be the best option. Wow. You got a degree in taxation, started working in a small transactional law firm, practicing in a very niche area of tax law, which started out great, but ultimately became a very toxic work environment, which destroyed my confidence. I subsequently transitioned into an HR-related non-legal position, and now I'm living in a real community working for a nonprofit, practicing in a different area of tax law. Looking back over my career and all the jobs I've had, one common thing I have enjoyed is helping and educating people. However, I've discovered I do not like interpreting the law and being the one to figure out the answer to difficult questions. I'm a chronic overthinker and constantly second-guess myself in almost everything that I do. Having the responsibility to figure out the answer to difficult legal questions causes me significant stress and anxiety to the point where I often find myself paralyzed and unable to make any decision. I despise practicing law and would do things differently if I could start over. You know, a few years ago, I used to stock a book called Running from the Law. It was written by um, a lady who had been an attorney. She got out. Uh, the book was so popular, I couldn't keep it in stock. And uh, I, don't, I don't provide it anymore, but it, it speaks to the malady of so many attorneys deciding, eh, they don't want to do this anymore. Now, that's true in any profession. I mean, I'm contacted by physicians, attorneys, dentists, pastors, engineers, accountants. You know, a lot of people uh, followed a degree path because they had the academic ability to do so. And now having attained that degree, discovered they don't really like the day-to-day work. Now, there's a couple of responses to that. One is, don't worry about it. Go do something else. Doesn't matter if you've got an MD behind your name. You can go do other things. The other thing is, Within the scope of any profession, there are thousands of things that could be done. So you may not enjoy being a brain surgeon, but you may enjoy being an emergency room doctor where there's a lot of variety of the things that you do. You're on a particular shift and then off the clock aren't going to be called at home because it's not your shift. You know, so there's a lot of movement that can be done there, but nobody is trapped. That's the bottom line. If you're feeling trapped, you're wrong. You're not trapped. You can do other things. And certainly, as the current gentleman I'm reading about here, as an attorney at $40,000, you ought to be able to walk into any one of 15 other things and double your income and enjoy what you're doing. Well, I've recently started to sell on Amazon, he says, which I enjoy, but because cash flow and time are limited due to work and family obligations, it's taking a little longer to bring in sufficient income to do this full time. Now, there's a catch-22. What if switching more of your time to selling on Amazon would increase your income exponentially so that you didn't have to spend your time in a job that you don't enjoy where you're not being paid well? I mean, you you have to realize there may be a short transition time, but if you really understand the systems and processes of selling online and see the potential there, wow, I mean, how long would it take you to make up the gap if you did switch more of your time to doing that? Had lunch last uh, Friday with a young gentleman I've mentioned here who started a sideline where he sells a high-end bathroom item online, and now that's generating twice the income that he makes in his regular job, which is a very, very good job that he's 
been at the same company for 24 years. But he's sidelined now, while he's still working full-time, is netting him twice than it income. I mean, that's a pretty cool situation to be in where then you are in the driver's seat deciding what it is you want to do moving forward. So our gentleman here, our attorney says, I was recently approached by a former employer about doing some work in the side. The money would be decent compared to my current salary of $48,000 a year. However, this former employer was a very toxic individual who's gone through probably the different five different associate attorneys, including me over the last 10 to 12 years. Working for this individual early in my career was one of the most negative and stressful employment situations I've ever had. Part of me cannot even believe I'm considering this offer and I'm starting to wonder if it's because I'm desperate and not thinking clearly. In addition, I worry that doing legal work on the side would slow the progress of my Amazon business even more. I'd appreciate your thoughts on my situation as well as any insight you might be able to provide. Thanks again for all you do. Boom. All right. Well, you, you, you know, already with my comments, what my response is going to be. Absolutely not for you to consider going to work, going back to what was one of the most negative, stressful employment situations I've ever had. How could you put a dollar value on that? If that, if that doubled your income, but you had a heart attack, are you better off? Or if you got ulcers or something else along the way? There's just no way to justify the emotional, physical, spiritual cost of what you're proposing. Cannot be done. But what I want you to realize is that's awesome that he's wanting you to come back and do that. That ought to give you the confidence, encouragement, and knowledge that there's probably 10 other companies out there that would like to have you do sideline work. You know, there's probably other legal firms that would love to have you come on board. I mean, clarify the work experience you described should have given you clarity about what it is that you really do enjoy. I mean, a lot of the purpose of those early jobs in our careers is simply because it gives us clarity about what we do not want to do. So when we hear from teachers, attorneys, physicians, dentists, pastors who are saying, I got my degree, I've been doing this for 10 years, I don't want to do this anymore. That's great information. That helps you clarify what the best options are moving forward. And a little life experience like you've had should give you more confidence about the sweet spot, that sweet spot that blends your personality, that blends your skills and abilities, that blends your dreams, values, and passions. That's where you, you can't do that in a vacuum. You can't just sit down in a classroom and come up with clarity on those things and where they come together, where they converge into that sweet spot. You have to have life experience. You have to encounter things that you don't enjoy, that you don't want to do anymore because it gives you more and more clarity about that. So I would encourage you to do two things. Certainly just do a job search for another position as an attorney. There's lots and lots, there's thousands of positions out there that may be a better fit than what you described. But the other thing is go into with your, keep your eyes open about what you're doing on Amazon and doing online. What if you could now, what if you could go from $48,000 to $120,000 selling online and doing nothing in the legal profession at all? Now, my question is, would your ego allow you to do that? Would you be comfortable having a law degree and you know, selling lawnmowers online? Or would there be some kind of a prestige challenge there? Now, we see this played out a lot. 
where people have an opportunity to do something that's really a lot of fun. You know, what, what if you could do the wood carving like the gal who carved Aristotle in the cedar tree right outside my office here? You know, I paid her a lot of money to do that. You know, she does that for a lot of people in our community here, uh, does extremely well. But would you be able to handle doing that? Or let's take something even, <laughs> let's take something even more. Yesterday, I had a session with a gentleman who is a therapist. He's a psychotherapist. He has discovered he has a passion for pressure washing. He got a pressure washer. He's done his driveway, his neighbors, a couple of houses, a couple of RVs. And he's saying, man, I could turn this into something really profitable without having to sit there dealing with the problems of people all day long. I want to do this. And I said, absolutely go for it. This is a great time of year. Leaves are falling. People need them blown off and the stains that are left. Man, ramp up, have a couple great months doing that. Just really limit your psychotherapy schedule. You know, do that six hours a week or whatever, but focus your time on building up this business. I think he's going to rock it. Now, here's the thing. We see people like Joe Polish who started as a carpet cleaner. Well, carpet cleaner, whoop-de-doo. He was actually a drug addict. He's very open about this, but he was carpet cleaning. Well, he discovered the easy part was getting jobs lined up. Now, he didn't particularly enjoy doing the actual carpet cleaning, but it was a piece of cake to go out and get people excited about it. He started teaching other carpet cleaners how to market their business, how to get business, which is the most challenging part for most carpet cleaners. He found that the easy part. He put together a little course. He made a couple million dollars selling a course. He's gone on to lead all kinds of other people in sales and marketing. He now has an organization called Genius Network. It costs $25,000 a year to show up a couple times and rub shoulders with other people in that. People like, you know, Brendan Bouchard and Richard Branson and Elon Musk and people like that who show up at Genius Network. Joe Polish, carpet cleaner, is doing that. Well, see past just the manual labor of what it is that you're thinking about doing. So if you can handle the the prestige diminishing, so to speak, of what it is that you're moving into, you're home free. Hey, I want to add one more real quick. This comes from a dad who says, my son has two degrees, one in communication speech, one in theater. He considers himself an actor, does short films in our state as a, as a side which doesn't pay. He works in a bar part-time because they'll let him off when acting roles come, come up for auditions and filming. He has, an un, he has an agent, but unfortunately hasn't gotten any paying jobs. He has $83,000 in school debt, can't see himself climbing out of the black hole anytime soon, if ever. He wants to move to L.A., no one will rent to him since he doesn't have a job in LA. And when he applies for jobs and get interviews, they tell him they're not interested since he doesn't live in California. To say the least, he's depressed and doesn't really know where to turn. He's done office selling positions, which he said is a terrible sale. And he's a terrible salesperson. Um, he didn't like the office setting of sitting at a desk all day. He refuses to find a full-time job in our town since he won't have the freedom to take off when he needs to. <clears throat> he needs someone to tell I need someone to tell me how to get through to him. And I put part of the blame on myself because his mom and I are the ones who told him he needed to get a college degree to better himself in the adult world. Wow. What a painful note from a dad. Son has two degrees, communication, speech, theater, 83,000 student loan debt, can't get a job of any kind, wants to be in theater. All right. Let, let me give you an answer here that's going to be kind of a sideline answer. And I want you to see it in this way. 
I, I don't know how to be successful in theater. I don't know what the skills are that your son has. And I know very little about being an actor, what that involves. Certainly you can talk to people who have done that. They'll encourage you, show you ways to improve, perhaps make connections for you. But I also want to, I want to share with you another thought. David Foster is the music producer, you know, very, very famous. Here's the thing about David Foster. He loved music as a child and his parents allowed him to take lessons in classical music. But here's what David said. I was good, but not great. He went on to explain that if he had been a better musician, he would have likely have ended up as an anonymous face in some orchestra. Not being great forced him to look for other ways to be involved in music. So he writes and produces for other musicians who he considers to be far better than he is. I mean, it's his songs have made many famous singers into superstars. I mean, he's worked with people like Celine Dion, Barbara Streisand, Andrea Bocelli, Josh Groban, Whitney Houston, Madonna, Michael Bublé, goes on and on and on. His own, I mean, he's, he's, my gosh, he's gotten like 47 Grammys. I mean, his awards are just untold because he gave up on trying to be a great musician and decided just to help other people who were. I wrote a blog a few years ago about gold being discovered in California in the spring of 1848. By May of 1848, reports are flying that there was more gold than all the people in California could take out in 50 years. 28-year-old Samuel Brannan opened a small supply store at John Sutter's Fort, right in the heart of the gold rush. He, he purchased a little vial of gold. He didn't mind for it. He purchased it, went back to San Francisco, shouted as he got off the train, says, gold, gold. By the middle of June, three quarters of the male population had left San Francisco and gone to the gold mines near, Fort, near Sutter's Fort. Now, here's the thing. Brannon never looked for gold, but by selling shovels, picks, and supplies to the wide-eyed miners, it made him California's first millionaire. His store was selling as much as $5,000 a day, which is equal today to about $150,000 in goods a day to the miners. So instead of looking for gold, like everybody else was doing, he sold supplies to those guys and knocked it out of the park. I mean, my gosh, I love that. Love that. Well, hey, I'm going to wrap up here. You know, Matt Bauer is a friend of mine. He's publisher, Thomas Nelson Publishers. You know what else he does? He's an actor. He played the lead in Les Mis that was done at the factory here in Franklin. Did a marvelous job. But he didn't force his art to put food on the table. There's a lot of people who are wonderful, wonderful artists, but they've never forced their art to pay the bills. Michael D'Amico is a friend of ours, friend of Joanne's. He's an artist right here in Franklin. He's a wonderful artist. He has a frame shop. He frames art for other people. He makes his money framing and producing jaclays for people. That's what he does to create income. A lot of times we look directly at our art. I would recommend that you have your son, you and your son both read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. Big Magic. Well, she talks about even after she was famous as a writer, she kept her real job because she didn't want to force her writing to be her only source of income. I mean, a lot of people have approached it sideline like that, where they were able to embrace their passion without destroying it 
as being, again, the only source of income. Well, hey, I want to remind you, we've got the webinar coming up where I'm going to talk about how to move away from all these challenging things that your education may have positioned you for, how to move right into being an entrepreneur very comfortably, how to overcome the five things that get people stuck. Number one being fear. I'm going to go through that Monday, September 9th, one o'clock, free webinar. Just go to 48dayseagles.com slash unstuck. I'll have that in the show notes as well. And then right after that, we're going to have an hour live online with people who are already experiencing the joys of being entrepreneurs. Now, some of them have little ventures. Some of them have multi-million dollar ventures, but you know, it's to hear from them and how they overcome that initial concern about moving into the entrepreneurial space. So, Hey, join us. Love to have you join us there. That's our resource. 48dayseagles.com unstuck is where I want you to go to join us. So you aren't one of the ones writing me this kind of a letter next year. I'll see you there.